Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady and I am here with Dr. Chris Keel, who joins us once a month to give us an update on how the economy is doing, not just in the U.S., but in various countries around the world. So we are going to be touching on Mexico and China and the U.S. and then we may just wander and go wherever we go. Chris, thanks for joining us again. You're so welcome. So let's start with Mexico. How's Mexico doing in their economy and how are we doing with ours? Yeah, we were just talking before the show started. There's kind of a connection between what's happening in Mexico and what's happening in China. China is experiencing some really serious economic reversals. Their exports are down. Their foreign direct investment has not been this low since the 1990s. Um, so investors are bailing out of Mexico for all kinds of reasons, and they're going elsewhere. And one of those elsewhere is, is Mexico. Well, Mexico is slated to grow next year, maybe 3.5, 3.5, 3.9, somewhere in that range. Right now, the predictions for the U.S. would be two, two and a half at the most. Um, there are even some calling for a shallow recession in the first two quarters of the year. So Mexico is kind of going in the opposite direction. Uh, when you look at foreign direct investment, Mexico has not seen this much FDI in 30 years. Um, it's leaping longer. And it's coming from the U.S., but it's also coming from South Korea, from Japan, even from China. I mean, a lot of Chinese businesses are, you know, they're only, they're businesses. They pay attention to what's happening in Beijing because they have to, kind of like our companies pay attention to Washington. You know, it's like they're not connected to the party. They're like, look, I make this thing and I sell this thing to the United States. If China is going to make it hard for me to sell this thing to the United States, I'm going to make this thing somewhere else, like Mexico or Vietnam or India or, you know, Vanuatu, wherever I have to go. And so they're also moving to Mexico. And Mexico is going to be historic next year because no matter which major party wins, Mexico gets its first female leader. Um, the Morena Party is represented by Claudia Scheinbaum. Uh, she has been mayor of Mexico City and is a technocrat, kind of a, she's trained as a scientist and is actually a little pro-American uh, as compared to the current leader. Uh, if she wins, and right now she's ahead in the polls, she'd be the first woman to head Mexico and the first Jewish leader of Mexico. Her opponent is Sochi Galvez, who is from the PAN party, which is the party of the North. PAN has been powerful in the past. They were the one that brought us Vicente Fox and Felipe Calderon. But their support has never been outside the North until now. Because Sochi Galvez's father is indigenous Mexican. He's a Mexican Indian. So the Southern Mexicans see her as one of them. And so suddenly Pan is getting support from the South as well as the North. So it could be a pretty close race. She's also a technocrat. She used to run a business consulting group and is also more pro-American. So you end up with either leader being more oriented towards the U.S. than the previous incarnation, AMLO, 
Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's a cranky leftist. Okay. Well, you mentioned it, so I have to ask, how's Vanuatu doing? Vanuatu is slowly sinking into the Pacific Ocean, um, and <clears throat> within the next 10 years, we'll probably disappear. Um, <laughs> so, so there won't be a lot of investment there either, unless it's in, I don't know, water wings. Uh, so. Yeah, oh, great. Now, China has had some difficulties of late. They always report uh, ISM numbers, uh, oh, 9%, 10%, you know, numbers we don't see, can't see, uh, yeah. another pandemic. But at the moment, they're not reporting those kind of numbers. Right, right. And they have seen a lot of reversal for a lot of reasons. Some of them we've been dealing with the last couple of years. Supply chain was what kind of started the most recent decline. But even before that, when G took power, for very logical reasons, he wanted to reduce China's dependence on exports. He saw that as a weakness, which it was. I mean, China was too dependent on the U.S., on Europe, for its economic growth. So he wanted to grow a domestic economy. The way you do that is create consumers. The way you do that is pay them more. So China has seen a five to six thousand percent wage increase in certain sectors of China, particularly on the coast. Well, that's good for growing a consumer class, but it's bad if your if your position was the low cost producer. You can't be the low cost producer when you're paying people more money. And that allowed India and Vietnam and Mexico and dozens of other countries to say, hey, we're suddenly competitive because we're now a low-cost producer. And so we now import more from Mexico than we do from China. And what we used to import from Mexico, oil, gas, food, well, now it's consumer goods. It's manufactured goods, lots in the automotive sector, but also t-shirts and shoes and you know because mexico says look we've always been able to make this stuff it's just that we weren't as cheap as china we are now <clears throat> wow that's a big shift five to six thousand percent wage increase yep. i mean you know the vast majority of the population doesn't see it but what you're talking about is the industrialized coastal cities where just like in the U.S., they have labor shortage, they have skill shortage, and if you're a skilled worker in China, you're now in a position to do what American workers can do, demand more money. It's like, so, you want my skill? Cross <laughs> yeah. my palm with silver. Yeah, that's right. Chris, this particular report that we do with you once a month is called the Flagship Report because you put out a report Three times a week, I think it is called the flagship report. We do. We do. But you also put out something called the watch. Yes. And we have a report twice a month with the Institute for Supply Management where we talk about the ISM number. And I'm just wondering, where does the ISM number fit in the watch? Exactly. The ISM is one of those very unique surveys that are accurate mm -hmm. and surveys are useful tools however they're easily manipulated and when you look at things like like the consumer confidence survey that people see all the time 
problem with that type of survey is that you're asking people who don't know anything. <laughs> so you call a consumer and say, are you feeling confident? Uh, sure. I, I got all my Christmas shopping done last weekend, so I'm very confident. They have no way of answering that in any intelligent way. Many surveys, you end up seeing them skewed, depends on who responds, etc. The ISM has the virtue of being accurate because it asks the purchasing manager a very simple question, and they don't know enough to lie. So the consumer is is going to get an act. Purchasing manager is going to be asked, "Are you buying more or less steel? How come? I don't know." I don't even know what we meant. Um, somebody told me to buy more steel, and I'm buying more steel. And somebody said we're out of toilet paper, so I'm advising that too. You know, it's just accurate. So, as a survey, it's this really good way of sort of tracking what happens in the economy month to month. We incorporate that into the watch because it's one of the data points that we look at. There's 23. 24 different variables that go into the watch. So we're going to look at GDP numbers. We're going to look at inventory to sales ratio. We're looking at shipment counts. And when it comes to freight flow into the West Coast ports, we look at all sorts of different things, inflation numbers, anything that's put out by the Fed. But the ISM is in that. And particularly when we're looking at forward-looking data, that's where the ISM is useful because they're talking about orders that will be incorporated later. You know, if the purchasing manager is buying today, they're producing tomorrow. So it's it's a way of, of tracking what you think is going to happen, particularly if you look at like the new order index, because the ISM will separate between just the usual reorder this is stuff we always buy versus this is new and indicates we're doing more business or a different kind of business. So, yep, the ISM is a, is a critical tool. And because it is universal, you can compare, I think they have 36 countries now in your list. And so you can look at it and say, huh, we're doing better in China. Mexico is doing better than us. Um, so it's a unique tool. Yes, it's been very powerful. We've watched it. Uh, oh, gosh, I've watched it now for 30 years. It tends to be yeah. dead. Um, so far, it's not indicating a recession in the near term. What's the watch kind of talking about? Yeah, we're looking at a pretty decent year. I'm not in the, in the camp of, of shallow recession. Those who are taking a more negative approach, and we're not looking at a deep one, even those who are pessimistic are saying 1% decline in first quarter, maybe 0.7% in second. But I'm with the group that's saying, we have been dodging this now for a year and a half, and we're going to continue dodging it into 2024. So I'm thinking... 2%, 2.5, not rocket speed, but just look what we did in third quarter. We were predicting third quarter of this year that we were going to be very slow, maybe 1%, maybe 1.5. So the initial number we get was 4.9. I mean, it was really high. 
But everyone said, okay, well, that's just the first version. There's going to be a revision. And when the revision comes, it'll revise down. We're just sure of it. So the first revision comes in at 5.2. Like it went up. It's like, what? And it's like, well, the consumer is still spending and the inventory build is still going on. And the world is paved with misinterpretations of American consumer attitude. You know, we look at this and say, well, consumers owe $7 trillion on their credit card. Surely they're going to stop spending. And the consumer says, well, I can't be broke. I still have checks. Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, but you owe all this money on your credit card. That's okay. I'll just get another one. Yes. You know, I'll pay my I'll pay my master card with my visa, and my monthly payment's only twelve bucks. So, yeah, but your total debt is like eighty million dollars. I know, but my monthly payment's only twelve bucks. I can keep spending. So, the consumer continues to to baffle. I don't know why they baffle because we've been doing this for decades. I mean, it's Christmas. We buy things for people we don't even like. Um, you know, so it's yeah. the American way. That's right. We have to treat everyone with kindness. Yes. This one month of the year. This one month. <laughs> Three weeks, really. I mean, you know, once Christmas <laughs> is done, we're we're you know, it's like it's over. Um, so yeah. That's right. So I'm also curious because there are some impacts in the ISM report that we talked about with Tim Fiore and Anthony Nieves mm-hmm. in terms of exports going to, uh, for instance, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not exporting anything unless it blows up. Right. Right. <laughs> how is Russia doing in there? I'm just wondering how long Russia can hold out infinitely, or are they eventually going to run out of steam in this? Well, you know, it, it kind of depends on on how you define running into problems. For the Russian consumer, for the Russian citizen, it's already very bleak. I mean, there's a very, very serious economic deterioration in Russia, but it's a dictatorship. And a dictatorship can simply say, yeah, I know you're starving, and if you keep bitching about it, I'm going to shoot you. Um, so just knock it off. And by the way, those who complain the most will be sent to the front and maybe we give you a gun. Maybe we don't. Um, and you know, so there's the the power of a dictatorship. And the other thing, of course, is that Russia has been able to dodge many of the economic pressures that we've tried to apply. They now sell more oil on the market than they did before the sanctions. So, and we could get into a whole sanctions almost never work, um, no matter who they've been trying. You know, it's just, it's one of those things where it sounds good, but unless everybody on the planet participates, I mean, how many years have we sanctioned Cuba? I mean, and it's not changed. It's still a communist country run by not the Castros anymore, but I mean, they've been sanctioned, I think, almost as long as I've been alive. And that's getting on in those years. Um, And it hasn't worked. So Russia continues to make money because it sells its commodities. Um, Both countries have reached stalemate status. Now the question is, how much longer do we support Ukraine? 
how much longer do the Russians decide to invest in this? They have lost. The accounts are, are a little bit murky, but the estimate is they have lost 200,000 troops killed and 300,000 hurt. And, I mean, that's half a million people. So when when does the population say, why are we doing this? And so it's it's but Vladimir just announced he's running for president again, you know, so hasn't affected his popularity, apparently. Well, apparently (laughs) within, you know, he's a legend in his own mind. So as long as he's popular with him, um, he'll keep running because it's like anyone who had the temerity to run against him is probably going to be dead within 24 hours. (laughs) That's exactly right. Uh, Israel and uh, Hamas, Gaza. Oh my, yeah, yeah. That's obviously been going on since Israel was born in 1947. Right. And will it will it be 2147 before it's over? <laughs> Maybe 3147. <laughs> um, yeah. The interesting thing, and you know, it's almost churlish to talk about economic stuff when you're dealing with humanitarian causes of this magnitude, both in terms of what Israel lost and what the Palestinians are losing now. The surprise has been that the Arab oil states have not taken much of a position. If we remember every other Arab-Israeli conflict, the oil producers got engaged. There were embargoes, there were decisions to cut production there were all kinds of of gestures made uh, to put pressure on the u.s and israel not this time we expected it we thought that there would be oil prices rocketing up into the hundreds 110 120 goldman sachs which is the king of panic said that it was going to be 200 dollars a barrel well it never got never got out of the 80s and when you started to hear comments by for example saudi arabia somebody asking you know why aren't you engaged and they said well as near as we can tell iran's behind all this and we hate iran so why would we do anything to help them you do realize that we have hated them for i don't know two thousand three thousand years um we're not going to change now so the world implications have been limited. You know, we've not seen the impact on oil markets, which doesn't mean it can't happen, but it's it's turned into a very nasty regional battle where it's Israel versus Hamas and Hezbollah. And ending something like this is, is virtually impossible. I mean, Israel is trying to root out Hamas for obvious reasons, but in the process, they're slaughtering civilians. And if there was anyone who was against Hamas before, they're sure not now. Um, so you've basically created another, and every country that's ever done this, that's the problem. You know, the terrorists know what they're doing in that respect. Hamas is not accidentally headquartering in schools and hospitals. They know that if you're going to attack them there, oh good, you're going to kill a bunch of civilians and make us look good. Nobody seems to question the moral depravity of making a hospital your military base. Right, right. Pretty, uh, 
pretty awful what's going on. And so, you know, eventually I hope they run out of money. Uh, yeah, really. Either side, so they give up. <laughs> exactly. Because it's uh, manufacturers in this country, and I'm sure it's true globally, don't like uncertainty. And no. this is a world of uncertainty. The irony of what's going on in Ukraine and the Middle East and elsewhere is that it has stimulated the defense sector in the U.S. I mean, we're one of the bigger drivers of GDP lately has been the defense sector. And because we don't we're not engaged the way we were in Iraq or in Afghanistan, we don't have troops there. We're just sending stuff. And so, I mean, I'm per periodically on the Birmingham, Alabama TV station. And, you know, they're, they're kind of like, you know, we kind of like these wars because we produce those missiles nearby. And missiles are one use only. You know, you fire one, you got to get another one. Um, and <laughs> we're working three shifts a day, seven days a week, 365 a year to keep up with demand. Military is even saying, well, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but we're getting rid of all of our old equipment by sending it to Ukraine, and then we get to buy new toys. Um, so the defense sector is kind of like, yeah, you do understand that we like war um, without putting too fine a point on it. It's like I gave a talk earlier this year to the Casket and Funeral Supply Association who wanted me to point out that 2020 was one of the best years they'd had in decades. And one of the guys put his arm around me and says, well, son, you want to put too fine a point on it, but good people are good for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, always interesting to chat with you, Chris, because you've got a great worldview. You're incredibly knowledgeable. We've had fun over the years trying to stump Chris on some country like Vanuatu, you know, what's Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Vanuatu, poor Vanuatu. Vanuatu is one of those countries in the South Pacific that is slowly sinking um, because of rising sea levels. And so Vanuatu is, is kind of wondering what happens when it's Atlantis. Um, so <laughs> yeah. we'll see. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate your time, and we'll let you go because you're a busy guy. I know you write for our manufacturing outlook easing, and you travel more than anybody I know. I'm glad I don't have your travel schedule. Thanks for being with us. What? What? You you think 265 flights in one year is too much? Uh, <laughs> Southwest loves me. Yeah, but they do. Have you gotten the like the movie, uh, a little pilot pin yet? You got your wings? No, they haven't got. You know, Southwest is pretty frugal with its with its generosity. But I do get to get on the plane early, you know, which is always fun. Um, and and Wi-Fi is free. Yeah, great. Well, Chris, we'll talk with you again next month, and we look forward to your article in the upcoming issue of Manufacturing Outlook. Uh, we've got it. The public doesn't have it yet, but thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you, and we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you for tuning in to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Like us on YouTube, subscribe, and join us on our social media channels. Always great to be with you. That's our show for today. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please like and subscribe, share on social media, or leave a review. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Rumble, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us online at mfgtalkradio.com for our other episodes. We have also included links to our advertisers below. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.